Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, part two of my two-part conversation with Hollywood writer-producer Paul Davids regarding his startling evidence for life after death. In this experimentation, we actually held a seance there, and there were things that happened in the seance that were caught on film that were very disturbing because, they, you know, you'd say that they, they couldn't happen. This podcast is supported by Paranormal Contractors, a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, it's time to call in the professionals. Call 1-866-724-0800. 1-866-724-0800. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Paul Davids standing by for part two of our conversation on the remarkable case of the late Forrest J. Ackerman. Just a reminder, Christian D. Cadieux from Paranormal Contractors will be here. We are going into part two of our conversation with author, filmmaker, Paul Davids, who is the co-author of a most remarkable document. It's called An Atheist in Heaven, The Ultimate Evidence for Life After Death, uh, which details in incredible detail the after-death communication between Paul Davids and his good friend, mentor, Forrest J. Ackerman, who was a science fiction writer, a literary agent, and the editor of Famous Monsters of Filmland, which was an inspiration to uh, generations of filmmakers, and this all uh, began a few months after Forrest Ackerman passed away in uh, December of 2008. Things began to unfold in March of 2009, shortly after, uh, I guess it was the weekend, following a Hollywood tribute to Mr. Ackerman, uh, which we talked about previously. And uh, then we talked about March of uh, 2009 at Paul David's vacation home in Santa Fe, New Mexico, what has been called the ink obliteration on a particular document that Paul found on his bed. And uh, we're going to pick it up from there and just kind of summarize that once again before we move forward. But let me once again introduce Paul Davids. He's an author, artist, director. He's produced films that include Marilyn Monroe Declassified, NBC Universal's Jesus in India, and The Sci-Fi Boys, and Showtime's Roswell. He co-authored six books of the Star Wars saga with his wife, Hollis Davids, for Lucasfilm. He's a Princeton psychology graduate, and his uncanny experiences of phenomena related to Mr. Ackerman are the subject of the film The Life After Death Project. An Atheist in Heaven is about this extraordinary case of afterlife communication, and Mr. Davids has signed a sworn affidavit certifying that it is all uh, true, and we should also point out uh, that uh, Michael Shermer, 
uh, from Skeptical Inquiry magazine. Uh, and I've interviewed Michael Shermer. Let me tell you, he's a tough nut. <laughs> Not my favorite person to interview. Uh, however, he has some actually some pretty uh, positive things to say uh, about this entire account. And um, we'll, we'll get uh, uh, Paul Davids to fill us in on that a little bit later. But let's uh, welcome Paul to the program once again. Paul, good to have you with us. Thank you, Richard. All right. It's great to have the opportunity to, to, to tell about this. It's all there, all the uh, the strange incidents that have happened. There's a glossary listing 140 events that have happened in, uh, well, the last uh, seven years. And uh, there's the reports of the scientists who studied the physical evidence because uh, when the first incident happened involving ink, I treated the document as uh, a potential scientific evidence and was soon to personally hand-deliver it to the head chemist at Indiana University. That was Jay Spiegel. Dr. Jay Siegel, yes. Siegel, Jay Siegel. Okay, yeah. just quickly, for those who weren't with us previously, just very, very quickly, uh, a thumbnail sketch of what you found. You came out of your bathroom at your vacation home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Right. And you discovered you had printed out 24 pages of kind of a tax document, a summary, f- including a phone log of people you had contacted and so forth. Yeah. And what did you find? Yeah, and this was just a few days after the big tribute for Fari Ackerman in Hollywood, uh, and two Canadian filmmakers had been there and had and claimed that they had had contact from Fari after visiting his crypt. And I knew Fari for you know we're talking about a half a century. I met him when I was a a boy, and uh, he, he was like a second father to me and a great inspiration for me to follow the career I did in in film and television and writing. Uh, so. Uh, the experience I had was, it was a few days after the uh, tribute, and uh, uh, a document that I knew had been absolutely ordinary. Uh, when I put it down on my bed and went into the bathroom, when, when I came out five minutes later, I'm alone in this house in Santa Fe. The doors are locked. There's no question about that. There's no one physically present who could have done this. But then four words are strategically carefully, meticulously blacked out on the document with ink or paint or whatever was used that is still moist at that time. So it had to have happened while I was in the bathroom. And uh, because it was so clearly targeted, uh, it was a profound mystery because, as I said, there was no one physically there that could have done it. I didn't do it. I was shocked by it. I was frightened when it appeared. But I was careful, you know, not to touch it. And I, uh, in the first hour, we talked, for those who didn't hear, we, we talked about how I, I, I determined uh, after some time that it was logically could be interpreted as a message from Forrest J. Ackerman, particularly since it coincided with another message that uh, he gave in an apparition to the fellow that had organized his tribute. So, but what did I do? I um, Well, the next day we did investigations in the house. We did filming in the house. There's a strange mask from Africa, a tribal mask that was in the very next room. And there were electromagnetic field anomalies that were measured the next day. We got uh, a very clear electronic voice phenomena on the filming 
again that was strange that could have related to Fari's friend, you know, he was an admirer of Edgar Allan Poe. Fari and his famous monsters promoted every Edgar Allan Poe movie, you know, based on Poe's stories. And uh, here we had an electronic voice phenomena of the word Lenore. Just like that, when there was no one there who could have said that, and, uh, you know, I don't know any Lenore other than the Lenore who's in Poe's The Raven and his poem, Lenore, so, of course, it made me think of that. Um, so all these anomalies happened within that 24-hour uh, period. And I protected the document, and it so happened that I have a first cousin who, at that time, was chairman of the chemistry department of Indianapolis University, Purdue University, uh, I'm sorry, Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. Complicated college name. So Jace, Dr. Jay Siegel, here's a man of great scientific reputation. He's written many, many forensic chemistry books. Uh, he's testified in cases in courts of law that involved chemical evidence. And uh, he heard my distress, and I said, Jay, you know, please, if there's any way this can logically be explained, put my mind at ease. Uh, explain it for me. I can't explain it. To me, it was in my house and did this. And I, I think I know who the ghost was. But I know you deal in ghosts, you deal in molecules. So I'm, I want to bring you this document. And I came with my video camera. I filmed what happened in the lab. And the investigation progressed from Jay Siegel's work to he called in a former associate. Paul, let me just stop you there because your your phone is starting to crackle. And I don't know if this is another one of these ongoing, if this is Forey Ackerman reaching out to us again and playing some tricks. But Did it just start to crackle? It did, yes. Let me, uh, let me pick up the other phone that connects to the same line. I think you can hear me now, right? I can. Okay. Okay. So you were talking about uh, a chemist, Jay Siegel, and you're you're asking him to get involved in this investigation. Right. Well, the investigation, which he thought would be probably a simple thing that he could deal with quickly, because again, he and Dr. Allison of New Jersey were world class experts. They had done this large project. Categorizing, um, creating a, a catalog of all these different inks and dyes and paints and solvents. So, one question was, okay, what what was the ink that this happened with? They both agreed that this was deliberate. It was done intentionally. It was these words were targeted, and uh, so. One question was, what, what, what is the material that it was done with? And the other question is, how, how was it done? And another question is, can they reproduce it in the lab? And this mystery just compounded itself again and again and again for them. And they never got satisfactory answers to how it was done and were unable to reproduce it. And the actual answer about the chemistry and the molecules was very unsatisfying because it only intensified the mystery. Intensified it because 
they felt most of the molecules they were able to show were the same ink that was originally from the printer, but with silver added and with calcium chromate added that weren't there. So that came from some source added to that ink. But the problem is that because two words were completely blacked out, completely opaque, you needed enough ink off that page to make it opaque. Right. So you had to have a solvent that could take a lesser amount of ink and extend its blackness and make that work to black out two words. Here's the guys who know every solvent there is. They tried for three years. They were never able to reproduce it because you could always see through whatever it was that they added to the ink to try to make you know enough there to black it out. So they couldn't solve that mystery. Uh, couldn't solve the mystery of, uh, of, of, of how it, it could have been done. There was no one there physically to do it, and they couldn't reproduce it. What happens when a lifelong skeptic dies and discovers he was wrong about life after death? Forrest J. Ackerman, a luminary in the early history of science fiction and an ardent lifelong atheist, promised that if he were wrong about the non-existence of an afterlife, he would attempt to send a convincing message to a few people he especially respected. Not only did Forrest leave a physical message for co-author Paul Davids that could not be explained by contemporary forensic science, but Forrest produced an extraordinary wealth of four kinds of converging evidence. One, startling physical phenomena, many with clues to his identity. Two, frequent highly improbable synchronicities. Three, relevant communications via research imp- um, mediums sorry, via research mediums, and four, astonishing measurable effects on technology beyond anything previously documented in the history of afterlife research. Could this, in fact, be the ultimate evidence for life after death? Uh, Keep in mind, two of the co-authors, Gary E. Schwartz and John Allison, are both PhDs and uh, university professors. Now, uh, Paul, you were talking about uh, John Allison, who who you approached, and he wrote two chapters in this book, and he began to encounter or experience some poltergeist activity once he got on board. Uh, one of those he had involved, he made he was making copies of this ink obliteration, which sort of kicked things off for you back in March of 2009. And, um, well, I'll, I'll sort of relay this first one very quickly, and then you can get into some of the others. But he, So he would... He would have these photocopies sort of arranged, I guess, on a desk, and he would come and find them sort of scattered, fanned out on his floor. No other person had access to them or would have touched them. Uh, and uh, so that that was sort of one thing that obviously alarmed John. Uh, but there were other instances, one including uh, one involving his, his telephone and another involving a Furby doll. I'll let you pick it up from there. Yeah. Um, well, uh, when I came to New Jersey, I set up my video camera, and the first day we did experiments in his lab. Um, at his house, he explained to me how he was going to proceed with uh, the experimentation. And this involved taking very small pinpricks out of the, uh, the ink a part of the, uh, of, of the document and uh, to study the chemistry. And while filming him, a clock visible on the wall behind him, an old wind-up clock, was ticking away and it suddenly chimed. And uh, you see in the film that I did, Life After Death Project, you see John Allison, his face, 
absolutely shocked. Like he turns white, uh, and uh, he says, "You know, well that that shouldn't be working." Um, and you had to wind it up to make it work, and he hadn't wound it up in years. Uh, he thought it hadn't worked in years, and he had the key hidden. His wife was out of town. She didn't know where the key was. It was his heirloom, and it had no business working. It had no business chiming, but it's caught there on, uh, on, the, on the video, and it's never chimed again. Uh, it's, it's never worked by itself again. So uh, that and the mystery of his scattering pages, and we have reports of pages being scattered in the Acker Mansion, where Fari lived, by the tenants who lived there, you know, after his death, uh, like a, a, um, a singer who would rehearse with her music pages, and she'd uh, uh, stop to make a telephone call in another room, and she'd come back and she'd find the pages uh, scattered across the floor, spread, not just like they fell from the stand, but spread out like Allison did. So this was a recurring uh, phenomena. But with Allison, it it kept happening. His his phone behaved uh, oddly. It would move by itself across the mantelpiece and then fall and hit the floor. When uh, it, it wasn't on vibrate, there had been no call. Um, it had a, a rubber uh, container on the uh, the iPhone, so you know that friction should have held it on the mantel. And in one evening. Uh, at, at, around the time we heard that the Life After Death project was uh, accepted for uh, showing on the Sci-Fi Channel, the phone fell off the mantle twice, and then he put it on a coffee table beside him, and it worked its way across the coffee table and fell to the floor. Uh, later, he had the same thing happen with his iPad. He had a a Furby, which is a, a toy, a, an when it was many, many years old, batteries hadn't been touched in years. Batteries should have been dead. He was cleaning up. He picked up the Furby. These are little animal toys, you know, that uh, talk to you in their own language, Furbish. And uh, this one uh, talked. The batteries were still working. And he said that in a 24-hour period, it said to him twice, for e for e which, of course, it was... Forrest J. Ackerman, he went by the name 4E, and he spelled it with the number 4, followed by an E, and that's what John Allison is hearing from a doll. It's like something out of the movie Chucky. Right. But it's real. It's real. And then John was working, he said, on a uh, few paragraphs about a concept that Gary Schwartz had this concept, and John was exploring with it, the idea of a, could you have a soul phone? If there's life after death, could we ever get to a point where you'd have a telephone where you could communicate with departed spirits? It's all speculation at this point, you know, but that Gary Schwartz looks into the theory behind its possibility. So here's John Allison typing up paragraphs about uh, this uh, soul phone, and the Furby says to him while he's doing it, Ring, 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 ring. (laughs) <laughs> so, um, creepy stuff in his laboratory, his equipment behaving impossibly strange. A drawer pushing out onto his arm repeated times when there's nothing to push it. And 
there, there's a specific procedure for uh, turning off the, uh, the equipment. I think it's a laser desorption device. And the machine violated its own protocol and went through a series of things of with one device turning on and off by itself, which it shouldn't have done. So, again, it became a long list for John. And he, he eventually came to a... Um, we had a return to the Acker Mansion. We were invited to come there with scientists, Gary Schwartz. We brought two mediums with us, Suzanne Wilson, Jamie Clark, um, and uh, Rosemary Guiley, who's a paranormal author. Frequent guest on this show. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We spent three nights and four days at the Acker Mansion, the remodeled Acker Mansion. This is uh, several years after Fari has passed away. And... Uh, in this experimentation, we actually held a seance there, and there were things that happened in the seance that were caught on film that were very disturbing, because they, you know, you know, <laughs> you'd say that they that couldn't happen. We had a skeptical scientist there, um, Dieter Steckless from the University of Arizona, Tucson, and his wife Netzine. And Dieter and Netzine are experts in gorillas. Uh, they were in charge of the Diane Fossey gorilla organization mm -hmm. in Africa. And Fari loved gorillas and King Kong, and they brought this death mask of a giant gorilla to the seance. And while he was sitting on a, a sofa, and Suzanne Wilson was bringing through the voices of the spirits she said were present, the couch that he's sitting on, right where he's sitting on, starts to vibrate so strong it's like it's an earthquake. And it's captured on film, and he has his son who's sitting behind him touch it, you know, and confirm he feels the vibration. And believe me, you know, with my suspicious mind, although nobody knew we were going to hold the seance in that room until 10 minutes ahead of time, right. when the whole thing is over, I go to that couch, I reach into every pillow. I look under the couch. I want to know, you know, did somebody leave a sex toy in the in the couch? You know, <laughs> no, absolutely not. And I slept on the couch that night in that room. Um, there was nothing, no way any of us could explain it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Every Friday, we welcome Christian D. Kadir to the program, the real John Constantine of Paranormal Contractors, a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. Christian, once again, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. 
Thank you, Richard. From time to time, we like to dip into uh, some case files and discuss those, but this is a not really a case file, but it's something that's happening to you personally in your own home. Tell me about it. Yeah, that's correct. All right, so here's the deal. I mean, we all know what uh, what I do for a living, and what I can tell you is that where I currently live, uh, without disclosing information, is I can tell you that over the last 20 years, th- the last three tenants died mysteriously. And uh, I can tell you that um, there's you know, there's a lot of things that uh, that are going on, but here's the thing. I also have my daughters who visit me every other weekend. However, I, I know from years of experience in the paranormal industry, what I'm dealing with, I know what's there, it's difficult for me to use my equipment and remediate because it's where I live. And if I do that, my youngest daughter, she's extremely sensitive and intuitive. And I, she does not know what's going on, but she knows that there's something there. And I have to not beg her, but I have to plead with her to, to sleep over. I mean, sometimes she'll just sit up in the middle of the night and she's completely asleep. Uh, she sleeps with her eyes open sometimes, and I've caught her. She's literally sat up in her bed with her eyes open, and she's staring at the wall. And I'll have to go to her and talk to her, and she won't answer. She's asleep. And uh, I have to gently uh, you know, push her back into bed and put the covers back on and walk out. I don't want to investigate my own home, Richard, only because... I don't want to develop an attachment to any type of entity, whether it is good or whether it's bad. I have enough of this at work. From work, because of what I do, from crime scenes and paranormal, lots of times these things follow me home. Entities follow me home. I know it's there. I have to deal with it. I have to live with it. But I don't want to further investigate it because of where I live. You know, the best analogy I can give you is like this. The best chefs in the world do not eat their own food. Interesting, interesting. Now, just to demonstrate, I've learned a thing or two. I'm paying attention when we have our little chats. Why don't you just douse your place with with ozone? Yeah, I could. I could very well do that. I haven't as of yet. It's just this thing. You know, I, I can't explain it. I don't know how far I want to. It's my sanctuary, and you would think that I would be a little more proactive on that. And perhaps that's what I'm going to do. Right now, I haven't done that. I certainly should use ozone and uh, pump it through the HVAC system and, uh, and treat my, uh, my home. Christian, how do people get a hold of you if they have unwanted paranormal activity in their home or business? Contact me at 1-866-724-0800 or paranormalcontractors at gmail.com or at crimescenecleaners.ca. He's the real John Constantine, Christian D. Cadieux of Paranormal Contractors, a division of Crime and Trauma Scene Cleaners. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. 
But I guess he better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Hollywood producer Paul Davids is here talking about his book, An Atheist in Heaven, and his documentary film, The Life After Death Project, which lay forth some pretty compelling evidence that the late Forrest J. Ackerman reached out to a number of people from beyond the grave. I want to go back to the clock uh, uh, for a moment, because you mentioned uh, that uh, John Allison, uh, yeah. you were with him, and uh, his, this, this clock struck... Uh, chimed and it never, you know, it never did that before, never did it again. Yep. But there is a, um, a famous painting you mention in the book of Forrest Ackerman. It's called the Blue Forey. Yes, it's on our cover. Of it's the, the painting's on the cover of the Life After Death Project DVD. Right. And we've adapted it so the the Forey part of it is on the cover of the Atheist in Heaven. It's a painting by L. J. Dopp, and Forey, as an old man, has his forefinger up to his lips and he's. It's as if he's saying, shh, listen to the spirits of the night. You know, it's that kind of an expression. <laughs> but this, and the painting was made when? Painting was made in 2004. Okay, four years four before years he dies. Before he died. And, yeah. and the clock behind him shows what time? Two minutes to midnight. And when did Forey die? Two minutes to midnight. Mm. And then there was the incident of the clock uh, buried in Gary Schwartz's chair. When I visited him in Tucson, and we were discussing the case, and uh, the alarm went off at, this was actually two minutes to noon, or when it went off. He hadn't set the alarm. He didn't know even that it was buried in his chair at that point. But when you look at the clock, there's no difference between two minutes to noon and two minutes to midnight. It looks the same on a clock. It's not a digital clock. So that was strange. So you keep getting these recurring things. You get... We've had apports, disappearances of objects that shouldn't shouldn't <laughs> shouldn't be disappearing. You know they're gone, and then three days later uh, appear in a really obvious place. Many instances of that. You know the categories, and I want to talk about Michael Shermer because that's really really important. The Skeptic Society. L- listen, if you can if you can get Michael Shermer on side, you know you're onto something. Because as I as I mentioned, he is one. Hard-boiled. I don't. Even, you know, he's not he's even a had skeptic. His own experience now. You yeah, know, the spirits have paid him a visit. He can't explain it. <laughs> he wrote about it in Scientific American. Yeah, I reprinted it in uh, uh, Atheist in Heaven, and he he wrote a uh, a dedication. Uh, he signed to me uh, his book, The Believing Brain. Yes. After he saw the Life After Death Project, he wrote uh, to Paul in respect of your honest search and integrity, Michael Shermer. I've reproduced this in the book. And the point is, here is the, he's the publisher of Skeptic Magazine, not Skeptical Inquirer, but Skeptic, right. and he's the executive director of the Skeptic Society, based in uh, Pasadena. Right, yeah, I've been to his and place. He's, he's admitting, he was in my first film, he was the resident skeptic there, he wasn't... Uh, completely closed-minded, but he just said he thinks that if this stuff is really happening, we call it paranormal today, but tomorrow we'll call it quantum physics. Mm-hmm. You know, it'll be part of your science textbook. A lot of the things that happened there were specific uh, witnesses to. And um, I want to get to this point that, that it was a variety of types of evidence that built up, and this is why it needed to be 
this book also, because we had physical phenomena. Um, we had instrumental transcommunication, which included the electronic voice phenomena. We had extraordinary results from mediums. And we had many, many really improbable synchronicities where you just say, it just can't happen. The chance is one in a million that that would happen, and it connects with Fari. So Michael Shermer, who we were talking about, used the expression consilience of evidence and said that for science to progress, it takes the consilience of evidence, meaning the conformity or agreement of evidence all pointing in the same direction from different fields of study that you get this kind of confirmation pattern. And the point is, that's what we have, that's what we have here. Right. Now, I don't know which category this fits under. Uh, perhaps the synchronicity. But there, there's a, an episode that you document in the book involving Fate magazine. Yeah. Uh, in which they, they talk about the, uh, the, the ink obliteration. They talk about the blue, f- uh, a Fori painting. Yes. Uh, tell us about that. Okay. So, uh, I was asked by the publisher of Fate, Phyllis Galdi, to write an article about the Fari phenomena, because I told her about it at a conference. And I called the article, um, The Strange Case of Forrest J. Ackerman. And um, when the article went to press, the day I saw the, fir- the printed copy of it, I was so upset and dismayed, because I could see right on the first page of my article, there was a terrible double typographical error. I didn't see how anybody could fail to catch it. It completely destroyed the continuity of what I was talking about, and I thought made my article seem foolish. And so I was angry at the publisher. But then we talked about it, and what, what, the, what the misprint was, I was right in the middle of talking about the artist L.J. Dopp, terrific artist, by the way. Look, look him up. He painted uh, that blue Fari painting that had the clock that predicted four years in advance the time of Fari's death. So I just have the words L.J., and instead of his last name and what I wrote, it suddenly says in Fate magazine, the blackout in two levels of opacity spoke to Joe Amude, and then it repeats it. The blackout in two levels of opacity um, in in the, the document spoke to Joe Amade, and then it goes on with what I wrote. Well, uh, I never wrote those words there that that way. And when it has the in in two levels, it uses the numeral two rather than T W O. You know, I I didn't write that. It shouldn't have been there. And Phyllis Galdi said, you know, four proofreaders looked at this before it went to press. She did. David Godwin, the um, I think he was sort of an executive director of the magazine, and two proofreaders. And she said it wasn't there when they sent it in to go to press. So then I have this revelation where I'm thinking, you know, maybe this isn't an accident. It's, again, it's the article about the strange case of Fari, and it's sticking it right there in front of your face about the fact that there was this blackout in my document with two levels of blackness of the ink. Fori was underscoring that point, obviously. Yeah. How do we know that it's Fori and not some, some lower realm spirit prankster doing this? Well, uh, I think Fari was a prankster himself, <laughs> you know, maybe a higher realm spirit prankster, but it's a fair question, obviously. 
And I think that the best answer is that uh, so many of these uh, uh, instances of phenomena relate to Fari personally in such a specific way. And when we got to the mediums through Gary Schwartz, people that he had vetted, his details about this, you can see them in the Life After Death Project uh, DVD, but uh, you can read uh, much more detail about it in An Atheist in Heaven. But and, wouldn't that uh, information uh, be uh, readily available to people in the spirit world? You know, no, well, in the spirit world. Well, you know, again, things that are so specific to Fari, to his personality, to expressions he would do, to his particular beliefs, to, I mean, we're talking about from a medium that had no knowledge of who this forest was she was supposed to be communicating with. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, but you the, get you sure. get such detail about uh, about about his life, and so many of the contacts do seem to be so intimate. If you heard the first hour, you heard me talking about that uh, uh, Joe Moe's apparition of Fari coming to thank him for the tribute. Yeah, and the okay. timing of the first message to Fari, uh, from Fari, uh, to me, uh, with the uh, spoke to Joe Moe, which connected to that so closely. I mean, I, I guess I have to say the argument, the argument would be in the interconnections and in the specific relationship of the information to Fari's own life and how it is an expression of his own personality as we remember it. Now, if all of that, if all of that is being mimicked by um, some other entity, um, well, you know, I mean, how would you... How would you know or, or prove that? All I can say is that from somebody that knew him for half a century, the uh, the contacts have the thrust of his personality behind them for me and for others that knew him. That's the best we can say. Great question, Peter, and great to hear from you in, uh, in Buffalo. Please call again. Um, now, we talked about... Uh, uh, Ackerman's, you know, views on on life after death, and he was pretty uh, explicit about how he felt. What was what was your view of of the afterlife, you know, before Ackerman died? I didn't have a hard and fast conclusion. I was raised as a secular Jew without any particular religious belief. My parents were not practicing. Um, I did read on reincarnation and the studies of uh, Ian Stevenson. I found them fascinating. I read Paramahansa Yogananda, Autobiography of a Yogi, and he talked about reincarnation and a lot of these spirit things and apports, things that can appear and disappear from the spirit world. Uh, but when it hasn't happened to you, it all has a distance to it. Of It's an intellectual exercise, you know. Do I believe that? Do I accept his sincerity? Do I accept the the uh, evidence? I must say my closest encounter with it was when I worked for F. Lee Bailey on the show Lie Detector. And I brought in Dorothy Allison, a psychic detective from New Jersey. There was a book about her. And we put her to a polygraph trying to see whether she was genuine. And one particular case where she had helped police find the, uh, the body of a murder victim. And the clues that she offered as to where the body was, you know, it just seemed there's no way she could have known any of this unless it was given to her uh, from the, the murdered, the spirit of the murdered person. 
you know, it involved uh, a, a, a bridge for only uh, pedestrians. Uh, it involved uh, uh, factory chimneys near a church steeple. It involved the letters M-A-R, which turned out to be actual graffiti right near the oil barrel that the body was found in. Um, so when I heard all this firsthand, she passed the polygraph, of course I, I started to have an open mind, you know, this could be true. But never having seen any evidence of it until the Fari thing happened for me, uh, life changed. It just has changed uh, completely. And you'll see from the book, I urge people to to get An Atheist in Heaven. It's at Amazon.com. You can get it as ebook or as the uh, the 500-page print book. Uh, all the evidence that's there, the scientific reports, all the photos we have that support the case, the whole case is there for those who will delve into it. And my, my greatest hope is that the scientific community will take the bait and dive into it. Uh, and you mentioned the, um, the Marilyn Monroe uh, film that you're working on. Yeah, I've completed now. Uh, going to come out. There was an instance, and you've actually included it in the book, uh, something very odd happened with with regards to with Marilyn. There were there were uh, about a dozen things, a dozen really odd things that uh, that that happened. Um, we have a little bit of time. I'll I'll mention this. Uh, the film does get into the murder theory. Uh, officially, she was a probable suicide. Some think perhaps it was accidental overdose. But uh, there is the murder theory, and then um, in recent years there was a confession through the Sam Giancana family, the mobster, his family, that Sam Giancana had ordered this uh, this hit and had done it on a day when Bobby Kennedy had visited her. Sure, we know Peter Lawford and Kennedy were in yeah, town. He, yeah. And, and the, the mobster, Sam Giancana, hated uh, Bob Kennedy, who went after the mob with a vengeance, after the mob had helped, really helped John F. Kennedy get the White House through getting the votes he needed in Chicago to deliver Illinois. So they felt betrayed. And by planning it on a day when Bobby Kennedy had been there and his, his fingerprints, they thought, would have been found, it was a very uh, complex thing handled as a police chief, Tom Redden of Los Angeles, has said, handled like a, an intelligence top-secret operation, the aftermath of it. So one of the things that happened was I was filming director uh, Philippe Mora, who directed the film Communion, by the way, Whitley Strieber's book. Uh, and um, I was interviewing him because he dealt with the FBI documents on this, and I was explaining to him this theory that, uh, that there had been an, an intended entrapment of Bobby Kennedy. And this was on film. At the moment I said the word entrapment, his Mac, visible right beyond his shoulder, suddenly booted itself up. It wasn't asleep. It wasn't on and asleep. It booted itself up from zero. No one touched it. That was really odd. Never seen that happen. He'd never seen it happen. Never happened before or after with that. I've never heard. Has anybody who listens to this show call in? Let Richard know. Does anybody have a Mac that was turned off and something, you walk into a room and it suddenly boots itself, turns itself on? But it's reminiscent of what happened to Ian Johnson after they visited Forey's Crypt at Forest Lawn. Yes. 
that he heard the communication. And I don't know, I think we might have time for this one last story, uh, Richard, that's important because it's so Canadian. Got two and a half minutes, yeah. Okay. Uh, the ring Fari always wore, a gift from Bela Lugosi, uh, the actor who played Dracula. Yeah. Sold for around $30,000 at the, uh, the estate auction after Fari passed away. And... Um, Michael McDonald, who ra- had wrapped on Fari's crypt, as I explained, he lived in Halifax. Well, one year later, this ring somehow made its way from Los Angeles to Halifax to the gallery right next door, practically next door, within 100 feet of um, Michael McDonald's house. Mike walks down the steps outside his house, crosses in front of the gallery, sees the window display, and there is Fari Ackerman's ring. In the window, right oh next to his my. house. <laughs> so, the world is mysterious place, you know. And and if the skeptics want us to believe it all happened by accident, oh come on. Come and it, on. but and the thing is, it's still happening, isn't it? It's yes, it, it, yes, yes. Up to the point that you and I had lunch six weeks ago, and things have happened even uh, since then. There was an email that was received by Jack Kelleher, sent by someone who's deceased now. And the email was originally sent in 2012. He never got it. It arrived in his inbox, you know, now with a whole lot of names of Fari friends and their email addresses, we thought, was being delivered to us to tell them about an atheist in heaven. But uh, there was no date on this email except 2012. It, it's, it's Lost strange. in cyberspace for four years? I yeah. don't think so. Yeah, strange. Wow, Paul, what a delight. Thank you so much for this. Congratulations on An Atheist in Heaven, the ultimate evidence for life after death, available on uh, Amazon. Great job. Great job. Thank you, sir. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'm going to fill you in on what's in store on the next installment of Conspiracy Unlimited. This segment, sponsored by The Horrible Movie Podcast, available at iTunes and thehorriblemoviepodcast.com. Remember, just because it's from Hollywood doesn't mean it isn't horrible. Coming up next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, I'm dipping into my audio archives once again and presenting a conversation I had with the late Philip Marshall, the author of The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. This is one of the last interviews Philip did before he died under what many believe were very suspicious circumstances. FBI documents showed that the FBI agents had had been following the 9-11 hijackers and that they had been in close, continuous contact with uh, Saudi Arabian intelligence agents who were acting as their guides through America. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.